I have Golden Roads, so that's groovy. Uh, my sound is set up. You can see me. I am not blurry stuff. All systems are a go. Should we start talking about stuff? <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Stephanie Carey. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. Hey Chris, how you doing today? I'm doing well. I've actually been playing around with something new this week that has been on my list to try out for a while, but I've just never really gotten around to it, which is Dead Man's Snitch. Have you heard of Dead Man's Snitch? It rings a bell, but reminds me what it does and how to use it. So the idea of it is, say you have some periodic background job sort of thing, or like a Heroku scheduler, generate the report once a day, and you want to make sure that that happens, because like a silent failure would be very bad in that case. Dead Man's Snitch is essentially like an endpoint that you can hit, and you hit it when you're done with the thing that you want to check into. So it basically acts as a positive control system, like you have to check in with it every day, otherwise it's going to warn you, hey, we didn't hear about the big important report that you're supposed to generate every day. Are you sure you did that? And I've definitely been on plenty of different systems where that failure mode has happened, where it's like, wait, turns out because of that code change a week ago, we haven't been generating the big important report for a week. That's very bad. And so the idea is use this and it makes sure that like, yep, everything ran as expected and it's good. Um, So I'm using it just on a side project right now. I have a daily send myself a reminder email sort of thing, but it's broken a few times and broken silently the worst, worst possible way. So I added in Dead Man Snitch and it's cool. Is this being used for the Monopoly game tracker where you're keeping track of who's winning? Can you want to make sure there's a daily notification that goes out to whoever's in the lead or behind? You, you I mean, get that sounds it. super important. Yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is used in that application, but it's used. I have a daily reminder email uh, for the journal part. I want to say it was called Olife was a service a while back that you could write journal entries and then. I forget what the time sequence that they had, but it would basically say this time a year ago, here's what you wrote whenever it sends the the daily like reminder to check in. So I wanted to build something similar. So now I have it set to a month after I read an entry, three months after, and then on the year anniversary of a given entry being written, it sends me that. And it ends up being really interesting, uh, particularly the year plus ones will remind me like, oh, wow, yeah, I was I was doing that or thinking about that. And I've slowly been backfilling from various other journal sources that I have. And now the system has more of them. So I'm getting more of these emails and being reminded of like, oh, yeah, eight years ago, that was what we were up to. But again, that daily scheduled task was failing every once in a while. And I forget, I I don't think I have Honey Badger set up on this app because most of the time it's only me using it. So like, I'm not going to be surprised by a failure. I'm going to see it live and in person for the one user of this application. But now that I have stuff that's happening without me actively interacting with the app, it became worth trying out this new tool. That's really cool. Yeah, I feel like I may have interacted with that in the past. Like it certainly sounds familiar. But yeah, that sounds super helpful. The name's so interesting too. Dead Man Snitch. Dun, dun, dun. It sounds intense. It does sound intense. And it also has sort of the the nonsensiness of the snitch part. Like it's not like I want, I guess it's snitching on the failing part of my application. And I want to know about that. But like, I'm the one who wrote it. So snitching on me to me. It's like when you get blame code <laughs> and you find yourself there, which is so often the outcome when you get blame. Oh, no, never. I mean, it's it's never me. <laughs> and by yeah, yeah, I agree. It's always me. <laughs> JK, always me. 
it's fun to to sort of explore this and it's something that i'll definitely reach for moving forward but more generally there's sort of an idea that's been developing in the back of my head around traceability and observability like understanding my application at runtime not just the like general performance metrics but like what is normal most of the time this page performs this way but sometimes it fails and right now 10% of requests fail they're not a true failure they're like we tell the user that they need to change their input and so i'm really interested in that sort of feedback about a system at runtime of previously 10% of submissions were rejected and the user had to try again but if you have a deploy and suddenly that spikes to 75% then like that's probably something you should look at maybe something went wrong there and so the idea of backing up all of this i really want to get to continuous deployment even if it's just on like my side apps or things like that or really on on true production applications i think there's enough benefit there but i think the corollary to it is better understanding of how the system is performing and so that's sort of the stuff that's in my head around that yeah that's a cool theme that i agree i feel like you've been thinking about for the last uh, maybe like a couple of months at least last couple of times that we've chatted where you've been very interested in having more feedback runtime feedback from the app where if there's a change that goes out instead of finding errors maybe a user submits an error report or if something is just flat out failing and then you're getting something maybe it's by honey badger or some other error alerting service but instead you're tracking user behavior to see if there's a sudden decline or like negative behavior that's starting to pop up like you'd mentioned previously talking about like maybe if user sign up suddenly drops by like 50%, then perhaps that means there's something uh, that has gone out that may not necessarily be wrong and be causing an error, but it's causing confusion with users. I really like that approach. I very much appreciate that idea towards like finding out sooner from user behavior if we've done something that's negatively impacting people that are using our applications. Yeah, I'm definitely early in my sort of thinking and exploration of this space, but it's increasingly something that has my attention. And it's almost one of those things like once you start to think about it, I can't sort of turn that voice off in my head. It's like, what actually is my app doing at runtime? Like, what is normal? How many people sign up on a given day? What what else is going on out there? (laughs) Would be super cool to know because then I could do some stuff in response to that. I'm definitely interested in pursuing that more and trying to understand it. And then likewise define sort of those normal ranges and then anomaly reports and stuff like that become really useful because if you know what normal looks like then you can say very quickly this is not normal you did a bad thing bad deploy revert or whatever it is that you want to do with that case but yeah definitely very new so uh, as i explore it i will certainly share anything i find along the way but uh yeah that's that's most of what's been up in my you know normal other stuff but that was the cool thing so uh, what's up in your world So I've mostly been taking it easy. So in previous conversations, I've talked about whether I was going to end up splitting my time between more personal projects and then more downtime. And I have found I'm pretty good at this downtime (laughs) stuff. (laughs) I mean, that's a skill worth developing. I feel good about that. So I've really been leaning into the downtime, which has been wonderful. So it's been a lot of reading, a lot of snowboarding. I started playing the Monopoly game that you spoke of, and I realized I've never really played Monopoly in the way that the way in the way that you're supposed to with all the rules. I've always played like a very light version of it. So the one that caught me off guard was how you auction properties. So if you land on a property that nobody owns yet, I've always played with a board game that you can either buy it or not and move on. But then the game itself forces you to auction it, which is way more interesting and adds some skill to the game. So thanks for that tip. That's been a lot of fun to play. Wait, what game are you playing? Uh, just Monopoly. Monopoly <laughs> Deal or Monopoly? Because very different games. Uh, well, so to be fair, my partner's the one that purchased it, but I'm, I believe it's just Monopoly, not Monopoly Deal. So maybe it's not the one that you were advertising earlier. Correct. Totally different games. 
Ah, Wild, wildly well, different cool. games. Now I have another game to check out. <laughs> yeah. So Monopoly takes a long time and has Byzantine rules and basically leads to fights within whoever's playing and sadness and bankruptcy. And Monopoly Deal is a card game that you play in like 15 minutes. Oh, totally different. Okay. When you mentioned it, I as soon as we talked about it last time, I told my partner, I'm like, oh, there's this Monopoly game, we need to play it. So then he immediately went and looked it up and just presumed it was like a an app that you were playing and downloaded that. So we have been playing the app version. Good to know that there's a card game version. I love the idea that you think my wife and I were playing a best out of three, best out of three tournament of regular Monopoly. <laughs> Pretty much. Because that would be intense. <laughs> that is a marathon session. No, this is a very stripped down card game that borrows a lot of the elements, but then just makes it a little card game that, uh, yeah, to- totally different. But I'm glad you're enjoying Monopoly. That is a life experience that everyone should have. And if you hadn't played regular Monopoly before, you'll have so much more appreciation for the stripped down card game that I recommended. That is funny. Yeah, I will check out Monopoly deal. But in the interim, if you need a longer game, <laughs> that iPad game is wonderful. It's been a lot of fun and taught me that I've never really played Monopoly the Byzantine way, I think, as you just referenced it. (laughs) If it helps, I've never played with that rule either. And I've played Monopoly a bunch of times. But that seems like a whole other layer and uh, cool that you're playing it legitimately. I guess the iPad app sort of forces that. It does. Yeah, it forces the flow because it first came up and I was like, I I want neither. I don't want to buy it. and I don't want to auction it. This is bad for me. And yeah, you're just forced into that flow. So it is what it is. But in other news, I did play with a new tool uh, that's called Apache Bench, uh, at least new to me. It's been around for a while. And I used it back before I was taking some downtime where I was testing caching and bandwidth usage of a particular site because the amount of bandwidth that's being used is important for us to track. And then also understanding how much was getting cached is very important just so we know then if like the Cloudflare integration is set up properly. And so using Apache Bench made this really easy, and it was just really nifty since it's something that I hadn't used before. But you can run it from your command line, and you can use AB as the command for Apache Bench. And then you can pass it certain flags like dash C for concurrency, so you can specify the number of multiple requests to make, and then dash N for the number of requests. So a full line may look like AB dash N if you want to do like 100 requests with a maximum of 10 requests running concurrently, and then dash K, which turns on on that HTTP keep alive functionality, which is something that browsers do by nature. And it's just a Boolean. So you can just essentially pass that value in and it turns that keep alive functionality on, which is really nice since that's how browsers behave by default. And you want to simulate the stress and flow that your site will have from browsers. So that's sort of a nice way to add that into your performance testing. And then you pass in your URL for which you want to stress test. Do you know what the keep alive thing actually does? Is that related to SSL or... I know vaguely that it keeps the connection open, so I think it speeds up requests, but that's the extent of my knowledge as to how that keep live functionality truly works. It sounds nice just based on the name of the command line switch, so got that going for us. The fact that they mentioned that this is something that browsers do automatically and sort of like encourages you in that direction of saying like, hey, you're stress testing likely from the position of other users who are using browsers in this way. So I leaned into it that way. But uh, since we have the internets in front of us, I just looked it up and the more specific definition or the usage of how Keep Alive works is it is an instruction that allows a single TCP connection to remain open for multiple HTTP requests and response because otherwise by default, HTTP connections close after each request. So the Keep Alive also reduces both CPU and memory usage on your server. Gotcha. So maybe SSL is in there somewhere, but it's not, it's not specific to SSL. So cool. 
Yeah, I'm glad we looked it up because I'm not terribly familiar with it myself. Then once you use Apache Bench, uh, there's some really nice output that comes from it as well. Uh, it can be a little bit daunting at first when you see it, but it's also sectioned pretty nicely. So it has this really nice connection time section that's going to then let you know how many connections about the length that it took for each response to take place. And then it also has a percentage of the requests that were served within a certain time reported in milliseconds. So I love this part because it lets you know if like 50% of your requests were returned within like 148 milliseconds, or if 90% of your requests were returned in a different amount of time. So there's some really nice output that then lets you understand how long those requests took and then how that performance testing is interacting with your site. So yeah, it's pretty neat. Uh, first time I've used it. I don't know how often it's something that I'll really reach for, but in this particular case, it was really handy. Have you used something like this before or done some similar performance testing? I feel like I've used Apache Bench at one point. I know there was a time before I learned about Apache Bench where I did a like copy as curl and then I just did a while loop that just tried to hit the server as many times as possible and then I'd open up a bunch of Tmux tabs. That's a bad idea. I shouldn't do that. Uh, then I learned about Apache Bench and I've used that. But I think similarly, once a system it's actually out there running in the wild, then reality becomes the performance test. And so you get data and you can see like, oh, it turns out we get some traffic spikes in the afternoon and it looks like the 95th percentile response rate moves in this way. And so mostly I use it when like there's a known launch or first deployment of a site that's coming and we expect a large amount of traffic, but the system is largely untested. And so in that case, then I'll reach for something like this to do we need to find out somehow, so let's simulate traffic. But wherever possible, using real traffic is better. There was one application that I was working on that it was within a much larger organization, and they had a complicated, I can all go with Byzantine as the word to describe it, uh, SSO authentication authorization flow. And I don't even know how it worked, but I know that we tried to use Apache Bench or something similar to do some load testing. Because part of the way that the application worked was it would do long polling. So once the page is open, the page is constantly long polling in the background to see if new data has the essentially presentation that the user was watching, has it progressed to the next slide or whatever it is. And the long polling would, you know, with a large number of people simultaneously using it, you're now getting a request a second from each of them. Uh, and even with e-tags and other caching stuff, we were slightly concerned before the first big outing. But because of all of that SSO stuff, and this is the sort of thing that as I say it out loud, I'm like, I'm sure I don't know what I'm talking about here, but we could not figure out how to do the load testing with something like Apache Bench or even Curl. The only way we could do it was to open up a new Chrome tab and then log in. But then... You can log in in one, but now that session is persisted, not necessarily in cookies. Again, I don't actually know how it worked. It was weird, but you could have that and then you could have an incognito. So now you got two, but that's not enough. So, so myself and Edward Lovell working on this and we both got out our computers and we found a way to open up new instances of Chrome and we just opened as many as we could. And then from there, we started the long polling connection. And I remember there's a picture that we have of like 26 different little Chrome icons filling up the application dock at the bottom. And at some point it ran out. And even then, that wasn't quite enough to really simulate an aggressive flow of users coming in, but it was the best we could do because of the other constraints. And again, I'm certain that there was something that we were missing where it was like, oh, you just needed this cookie. But I don't know what it was. So we had to do the weird thing. I do remember that now. I, I feel like we've talked about that before in the previous episode where, yep, I remember you talking about all the different Chrome windows that were open. We're using a script to open up a bunch of windows. Yep. I feel like you'd also optimize this sort of like hand-rolled performance testing. Of course. We're not of just going to click on an icon <laughs> a bunch of times and open. No, actually, I think it was be we needed the command line switch to open it. And like 
there's an argument that you can use to say, open a new session, open a new session. I don't even know how you would do that through the UI of Chrome. But yeah, let's let's call it automation and making it fancy. That's what we were doing. But my humorous anecdote aside, critical question, how the application do? Did you succeed in the performance testing? Was the app ready for production or whatever it was that you were testing it for? Yes. So we're getting there. It's still, we haven't actually done the transition yet, the migration. So this is back to the application that I spoke of earlier, where we are transitioning away from like Google Cloud Platform to using Heroku and Netlify, and then also using Cloudflare. So we haven't actually migrated all of the traffic and this site receives a fair amount of traffic. They're receiving around 94, and that was even with some holidays, which is important because of how the application is used. It receives less traffic during the holidays, but receiving around like 94, 96 terabytes a month. At first, you just said the number. So I was like, what are the units going to be? This is exciting. 94 million requests a second. Is this going to... And then terabytes. All right. So it was 94 terabytes a month, you said? Yeah, uh, it's around 94 terabytes. And we want most of that cached because this is a mostly like static site. So we want most of that to be cached instead of going through and then consuming bandwidth, which is costly. And then right now the site is caching, I'd say like 95% of that data of that bandwidth. And so then that's what we're using the performance testing to help us concur that yes, a lot of this is getting cached because we wanted to simulate a lot of requests going to the site and then essentially check Cloudflare and then check Netlify to see what was actually getting through and being served by Netlify versus what was being served by Cloudflare. That's interesting, the the framing in terabytes or like in bandwidth, which I'm realizing is not something that I think about that much. So much of what I think about is in terms of requests, like how many times am I going to have to hit the database and pull up the current user and all of that, like 94 terabytes of movies. It's like, yeah, you watch some movies. 94 terabytes of text is wow, you read the entirety of the internet. Do you happen to have uh, like request count stats? Yeah, that's fair. So pulling up in front of me, the total request for last 24 hours is around 151 million. And then just to add a little bit more to the picture, uh, unique visitors is around 260,000 unique visitors in the last 24 hours. That is a lot of requests. That is the first thing that stands out to me there. There's also an interesting interplay between the amount of unique visitors and requests. Like It seems like there's a lot of requests per user based on that ratio there, which is interesting to think about the nature of content, like how much are individuals going to have cached on their machines so that the response is a 304, not even a here's a cached on the server side sort of thing. Ah, the internet. So many layers, like an onion. Yeah, I think there are some good opportunities to improve, like you'd pointed out, that sort of ratio between the number of requests and then the actual visitors that are there, or at least unique visitors. And I think there are some opportunities to improve that number of requests that are being made for each page load. But right now we're working on just migrating to the new platform, but then that would be an awesome thing to revisit to see how we can reduce the number of requests, which will then also have the benefit of reducing some of the bandwidth too. And now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Scout APM. SpotCon 2021 is the latest digital conference for developers from around the world to discuss, collaborate, and learn about leading edge technology and performance, observability, and transformation of application development. At Scout APM's inaugural digital conference, they are focused on creating the best community event for developers by offering informative sessions presented by industry-leading experts. To keep their promise to this mission, they are excited to announce Yukihiro Matsumoto, commonly known as Mats, as this year's SpotCon keynote speaker. Join hundreds of developers on March 26th for this one-day virtual event. And as an added bonus for people who register before February 28th, Scout APM will make a $5 open-source software donation when you attend. Get your free early bird ticket now and view the full speaker list at scoutapm.com slash spotbikeshed, all one word, spotbikeshed. 
Thanks again to Scout for sponsoring today's episode of The Bike Shed. Moving on to a different topic, we have a listener question. Indeed, we actually have a bunch of them. So probably for the next few weeks, we'll be doing listener questions each week. But as a reminder, anyone out there, if you do have a question for us about anything, process, tech, thoughts, career, uh, really anything across whatever it is that we talk about any given week, we would love to hear it. We will include in the show notes a link to our new fancy form where you can submit those or, as always, host at bikeshed.fm or you can hit us on Twitter or any, any number of the ways. So really just throw text at us through any medium and we'll find out how to get it into the list. But for today's question, the topic is how does ThoughtBot handle environment data? So Corey writes in and says, how does ThoughtBot handle environment data on larger projects or larger teams, particularly data-intensive applications or microservices? I know it's common in development environment to use seeds or other tasks to generate fake data for when you need for search or to make a UI more realistic for, say, an admin dashboard that you're adding a feature to. On data-intensive apps and or microservices, are seeds and tasks still the preferred way that ThoughtBot engineers create that fake data, or do you all tend to lean into options like scrubbed production data dumps? So, Steph, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I really like this question because I feel like I haven't found the perfect answer to this one. It just really, I hate to say it, but it depends on one, how much data your application needs and disregard if we're talking about a very data intensive application. And then two, how sensitive is that data? Is it healthcare data? Is it financial data? How secure do we need to keep that data? Thinking back through some of the applications that I've worked on in the past that have been data intensive, I've taken different approaches with each team or those teams already had a different approach set up. And I think it'd be fun to walk through each one. So one of the applications that I worked with where we were working with sensitive data and it was really important to have production parity because we are essentially using a bunch of real data to then create events or a timeline for someone that was really crucial to get it right. And a lot of the data that was coming through was very hard to mimic because we never knew the exact shape of that data that was coming in. So it was just easiest to work with production data. So for this team's approach, since we wanted the production parity, we were cloning over production data onto the staging environment and then treating staging as a very secure environment since it had production sensitive data on that side as well. And then to assist with that process, when I joined the team, I actually helped them build a separate, it's not really an app, it's more just like a separate repo with some scripts that would run each night. And um, I remember having some fun with it because I called it Fox, which is the name of Dumbledore's Phoenix because its job was to burn the world down and build it back up. And so then this task would run each night and it was working specifically with Aptable. So then it would provision a new database, it would copy over production data, it would deprovision the old database and then update the staging app to use the newly provisioned database. So it was a little complicated, but it worked well for the case that we needed it. I don't know if I would strongly recommend. In fact, I think it would be really interesting to reach back out to that team and see if that script is still very much in use or if they found a better approach. And then for local development, since we were working with Aptable, they have a really nice tunneling capability where we could create a temporary connection to a specific database, which then allowed us to connect our local Rails environment to a staging database. So then that way we could test drive and develop features locally. I remember Fox fondly. And similarly, I think I reached for the database tunneling often on that. And I think if I remember correctly, there was an option to fork a database so rather than having everyone connected to the singular staging instance where there was necessary, typically if there were performance work was probably the most important thing. Or again, like you were saying, we need data in a very specific shape to sort of construct a given timeline 
then we would fork off a database for an individual developer and then they would have sort of their production-like database but with performance characteristics that were closer to production and so the database tunnels were used a lot and then primarily staging was meant to be a representative thing although there were the databases ended up kept sort of increasing the the size and the tier of it because the data just kept growing and we needed performance to keep up and so it was somewhat cost prohibitive to continue like for everyone to have their own database was probably not the right solution so it was more of an as necessary sort of thing we'd have like two or three of them at a given time but not more than that but yeah i, I remember those fondly <laughs> yeah, good point. I'd forgotten about the part where we could have our own database. And I do think that was a concern with staging as well, because essentially, like you said, it was cost prohibitive to maintain that much data on production and then a staging environment as well. So that was something that the team was willing to do, but then, had, like you'd mentioned, has some of its trade-offs. Then to go the other direction, a team that I worked with recently, instead of cloning or moving over production data, because there are those concerns that go with maintaining that sensitive data on a staging environment, instead, they just manually created fake data on their staging environment. So that data was something that they created over time. It was just from folks clicking around and testing on the site. And that data just essentially lived on in perpetuity. And then when you were working locally, you could clone that staging data without any concern that you ever had sensitive data on either environment. And that approach worked surprisingly well, where they just never reset their staging database. So they always had that data set up and ready to go. So that highlights the two approaches that I'm really familiar with. There's one where you do clone over production data. There is the idea, as they'd mentioned in the question, of scrubbing production data, which something, Chris, I know you've said this as well, where getting that right is just really hard and it's really expensive when you get it wrong. So I've never personally taken the approach of scrubbing production data, although I have heard of other individuals where they tried to scrub production data. Maybe it's just to test a specific task or something, but they didn't actually keep around for future use. Then there's also the building data from scratch, which is time consuming, and it becomes essentially part of the app's upkeep. It becomes like a very important feature of that application and for development, but it does sidestep all the risk of violating a compliance requirement. And then there's also the benefit that most ecosystems include some version of either like a factory bot or a faker package, which can then help with creating data like fake addresses, or maybe it's just populating some lorem ipsum. And then there's keeping sensitive data on two environments. So you have it on staging and then also production. I am specifically interested in how this person highlighted with keeping up like fake data or development or staging data for microservices, because I too have felt pain in this area. So in the past, the teams that I've worked with, we've treated the microservices as independent systems. And so each microservice had its own instructions for this is how you create data and this is how you make it work. And then running it locally, I always had like the main application go. But then I'd have to spin up maybe it's three or four other services, depending on which feature I'm working with. So it put a lot of responsibility on me in terms that I had to understand how each service works and then also how to create data for each service. And that is tedious. It's something that can be overcome with really good documentation and then also pairing with other people. But it just puts a lot of responsibility on the individual developer to understand how to get all the systems up and running. So I am intrigued by the idea that instead of taking that approach of where you're running everything locally, it's maybe using more fakes. And I have really mixed feelings about that because on one hand, I like the idea that if there is this extracted sort of fake service that people can run or just intercepts web requests, so then that way you're not actually having to communicate to those other microservices, but instead you can just rely on this fake and interact with that instead. But there's also the maintenance that comes with that as well. So I'm really curious, given that you are plopped into a world with microservices and you need data across those, which approach would you take? 
I like how you constrained it so that I'm not allowed to just answer, well, I don't want to use microservices. <laughs> uh, so yes, let's let's take the question as you framed it. I similarly have worked on a handful of platforms that have gone sort of the two different ways. One where the expectation was that the developers would run each of the applications locally, each of the different services, and you needed to manually sort of keep data in sync between them. So that it was a very manual job. It tended to fall out of sync very easily. If you wanted to reset any given one of the services, you often needed to do so sort of in a cascading way. And that was probably my least favorite because it sort of really highlighted the complexity of the microservice architecture. Using the fakes is one that I've seen I think that's probably my preferred one. But again, like you said, there's the maintenance cost and ongoing, like, how do we keep that correct? One thing that I've seen in that is if the fakes are also used within the test suite for a given service, and you're working on that service, you can trust that the fakes are hopefully representative because they're part of your test suite. And hopefully, we're putting in the effort to maintain that. The one other option that I've seen is often in concert with microservices, there's more of a focus on DevOps. So how do we do orchestration? How do we deploy this thing? How do we have a staging instance that's a bunch of services that know about each other but don't know about production? And then can we have multiple of those? And so I've seen an organization that had a really strong DevOps culture, and you were able to spin up new instances of essentially the whole fleet on demand. So an individual developer could say, I need a new set right now, please. And then you'd run locally with whichever app you were working or whichever service you were iterating on, but then you were connected to staging or production like instances in the cloud for everything else. Again, you still have the complexity of data synchronization across all of them, but that was... I think my favorite of them, but again, it had the heavy, heavy cost of there was an entire DevOps team that was sort of dedicated to keeping that whole orchestration and ability to spin those up and and all of that moving smoothly. And to their credit, they did a fantastic job, but that was a lot of work. So to now loop back around to my snarky answer, this I, I think is a big part of the complexity of microservices. And I think to dial it in, microservices is not a singular idea. Like it's not just you take your app and you pull it apart into a bunch of pieces. I have worked in applications that had minimal pieces extracted, like an image processing service. And those I think are great. But when you start to split apart your core data model, that's where I think the problem comes in. In particular, there's a blog post that I've referenced probably a few times on here. It's called the Entity Service Anti-Pattern. So it's highlighting the idea that like if we're pulling our user model out as its own service and then our order model out as a different service and then order line items or products as a different, different service it's going to be very hard to build a cohesive application that integrates with all of those and have the developers be able to do it and have staging and all of those. But if you keep that core data collected and then maybe pull out functional pieces that can be split out logically, then you don't necessarily need to worry about it as much. And this problem can fold away to a certain degree. So that's, that's both a real answer and a fake answer. I really like how you highlighted the concept of if you're pulling apart your main domain into like separate microservices, but like the image processor, I think is a really great example. So I just really like the way that you framed that. And that feels like a fair answer or feels like at least a fair warning to realize that if you're going down the path of microservices, go ahead and start thinking about like, what's your staging environment going to look like? And what is your future? Like, what are some of the additional trade-offs that as you're taking that approach? And then you also reminded me that there's as you mentioned an onion earlier before, there are layers to this question in terms, there's the terms of how do you have the data for your local development versus perhaps for like staging. And those can be handled in two different ways. Like maybe you need far less data for your local environment. So that can be managed more easily from a script. I think my ideal state is where I can pull from staging because that's just lovely. Even if I do have to run several microservices locally, 
If I can just hop into each one and then essentially do a pull from staging, then that's pretty painless. And I'm fine with that. And that also feels like the closest to the truth of the system is running everything locally and making sure everything is behaving as I expect. With the fakes, then it does help in terms that I don't have to know as much about each service, but then there is the upkeep and then who has the responsibility of that upkeep. And then ideally, is it probably in its own repo? So then it can be shared because maybe several different services need access to it. So that just feels like a larger conversation to go down the approach of using a fake. And then if I'm going to use a fake, I'm probably going to also want to use it for tests. So it feels like one of those things that starts to blossom, like you introduce it for tests. And then once you realize as it's becoming more robust, then maybe you start to pull it into development mode as well. I do have one slightly maybe sneaky question that falls into this as well, with the idea of like, how do you manage all this data? And then one of my questions wants to be in addition to how sensitive is the data, but then to what if we have less data? Like, what does it look like when the app doesn't have that data? Like, do we have to have all that data? Can the app still function without some of it? Is it just hard crashing right now? If it doesn't have like one particular account that's created or one particular record, can we make the app more robust or graceful? And then does that also lead into improvements for users of the app. So if they are also encountering like a no data state, then it could be an improvement for them as well. Because that's probably one of the bigger pain points I felt in terms of lack of data is yes, I can figure out how to make the data, but it's first working through the errors to understand that I'm missing important data that's getting me there. So anything that we can do to then elevate those errors or make them more graceful. So the fact that we just don't need that, I think is a huge win. So in addition to how do we create fake data, how can we also make our apps require less fake data? Oh, I like that that framing or switching the question around or asking like, what if this question weren't even a question? It's interesting. A number of the apps that I've worked on were content apps. And so there's a core set of tables and models and records that are the content for that system. So Upcase is a good example. We had a bunch of videos, some exercises, things like that. But then we had all of the user records and user interactions with those models. And for a long time, I was able to get away with just saying, production, copy it back up to my development. And that was my favorite way to work, because then I had all the data, and it was representative of users, and I could see you know, this individual user journey, those sort of things. But eventually, it got large enough that that was no longer an option. And I've worked on other content systems that ran into the similar thing, where I can't just pull down a production backup, even if it's not necessarily... You know, this is sort of ignoring the compliance or regulatory concerns that might come into healthcare or financial services or other more lockdown sort of things. This is you know, records of people watching programming videos. So I felt okay having it on my laptop. But eventually, again, that became not an option. So I started to explore more interesting approaches. And the two that I settled on, one was using PG Dump to specifically target individual tables. So instead of saying, give me the entire database, I was making a specific backup in that moment and saying, dump out the videos and the exercises and the trails and all of the content specific tables, but nothing that was user specific. So the giant tables that had tons of data because every user interaction goes in there, I didn't need those, but I needed the say 10 gigabytes worth of content because it really, in that case, it was very specific data and I needed that in order to really test out the system. Like It's not that I'm generically redirecting to any page. Page, it's I'm definitely redirecting to the TMUX page because that's the thing I care about today. So that worked for that particular case. But there was also occasionally the need to represent 
like you said, a, a certain user journey or like we need data that's representative of a user's timeline because that's what we're doing here is building these. And so then I got a little bit weirder with it. PSQL, which is the command prompt that you can use, or it's the client to interact with Postgres servers, uh, you can issue a copy command. So it's backslash copy, and then you can parenthesize a query and say, copy that to CSV. And that PSQL prompt is actually running locally, but it's connecting to the remote server. So this is hard to say on radio, but basically I was able to run that command locally and slice data out of the production system into a CSV locally. And with that, I was able to do increasingly more complex things where I would say, for this user record, find all of their associated records and pull those down for me. And then I had the core content as well as this individual user's associated models. And that was really useful for defining those. It was a definitely much more brittle, much more of a thing I had to sort of hand roll each time, but it was a solution to that problem when the data had gotten big enough that I couldn't just throw it on my laptop. I should probably just buy a bigger hard drive also. That's an, that's a side point, but that's that's my problem. Yeah, I like that idea of being able to slice just specific chunks of the data. And then also, as you mentioned, maybe avoid some of that sensitive data if you can. It sounds like in that particular case it was, but in other cases, if you could just copy, maybe it's a list of products or books or other things, but then you just create one or two users locally. I like that sort of like middle ground because yeah, I've also worked where like pulling down staging, if it really is mimicking production, is just too big. So that's not really an option. But then tunneling to that database was one option instead. It sort of depends if my focus was performance on that given day, then I wanted to see a representative volume of data and the hardware that staging represented. Whereas if my focus is on application behavior, then I would often focus on let's get this data locally so that I don't need to constantly have a, a staging tunnel open. Although they work surprisingly well to the point that like, I don't know, do, should I just always run on a staging tunnel? No, but maybe. Yeah. And the, with the teams that I've worked with, I feel that I was always working with a copy of staging or an Aptables case where we were spinning up our own individual databases, but I've never had like a bunch of people connected to staging and then using that for local. I feel like that could get weird <laughs> and, and not a good way. <laughs> yeah, that feels true. Luckily, in those cases, there weren't as many developers simultaneously trying to do it. But very quickly as a team grows, I see that as being a non-starter and just not really an option. I do want to circle back for just a moment earlier where I was pursuing the idea of like, how can we find ways for applications to need less data? Because I very much recognize that for like the person that's asking this question, like there's going to be data that our app just needs that we're going to need to develop. But then we can also still look for ways that if we can reduce some of that requirement, or at least make it more obvious to the developer when they're missing certain records that they need for the app to run. Or one specific case that comes to mind is when I was working with the previous team and microservices, whenever there was a microservice service that wasn't set up properly, I actually got like a really nice error message that told me that was like, hey, this microservice isn't set up and you actually need to do this for it to be set up. Or this is some data that you're going to need to create that kind of developer happiness optimization I'm really into. It fits with your whole vibe of uh, onboarding and the importance therein. Like we have that first onboarding when we join a team, but then that first time that you need to build a feature for that weird subsystem that has special data requirements and other things like that's a new onboarding. And so can it be as simple as a script bin slash make the fancy data? Or is it a bespoke sequence of steps that is handed down just in oral tradition throughout the years? Uh, ideally, it's more of the script. Ben, make the fancy data. That is from now on going to be the name of my script. I love it. I mean, <laughs> you're the one who created Fox, so you're, you already have a good history <laughs> of naming on these sort of things, but feel free by all means. <laughs> That's true. I am particularly proud of that naming. <laughs> As you should be. 
that was quite the tour de force of an answer. Hopefully, Corey, that provides some useful nuggets uh, and some directions that you might be able to pursue. But again, uh, anyone else out there, we do love to get these questions. So please do continue sending them in. And with that, should we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. Show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or review in iTunes as it really helps other people find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bike shed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to the bike shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.